Freelancers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert, broke camp and headed down the trail, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. I've been waiting a while to try to figure that one out. I don't know. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Hi, bro. <laughs> Hi, Allison. In this week's episode, we're joined by Motley Fool Million Acres Senior Advisor, Matt Argersinger. We're going to talk about the state of real estate in the United States. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, every once in a while, you may read about or hear about, including on this very podcast, guidelines about how much you should have saved for retirement at this point in your life. And they're generally expressed as a multiple of your household income. Um, But of course, these are just general guidelines, right? And there are many variables that will determine how much you, dear answers listener, need to be saving to retire how and when you want. Um, So in this What's Up Bro, or WUB, as we call it behind the scenes, I'm going to highlight two of those variables, the age you retire and your income. So let's talk about perhaps the best known guidelines. They came from Fidelity. You could find them just do an online search for a report called How Much Do I Need to Retire? And you'll find them. But just so we review them very quickly here, um, according to Fidelity... If you're 30, you should have one times your household income already saved. So if you make $50,000, you should have $50,000 in your 401ks and IRAs. Age 40, you should have three times your household income, six times at age 50, eight times at 60, and 10 times at age 67. So the guidelines that you often read about or hear about from Fidelity, they assume you're going to retire at age 67. However, that's higher than the average retirement age these days. These days, people are still retiring at 64, 65. How much should you have saved up before you retire if you're retiring at age 65? According to Fidelity, it's 12 times your household income because you're retiring earlier. That's two fewer years of contributing to your retirement accounts, and you're claiming Social Security earlier, which results in a smaller benefit. That's a pretty big difference, right? Retiring at age 65, you need 12 times your household income. But if you just wait two more years, you only need 10 times your household income. That shows the power of delaying retirement just a couple of more years. That's always good to get a second or maybe even a third opinion. So let's see what T. Rowe Price says. And you could find their report. Just do an online search for, are my retirement savings on track from T. Rowe Price? Now, their guidelines are actually a little bit lower than what you'll see from Fidelity. They think at age 30, you only need half of your household income already accumulated for retirement, only two times by age 40, five times at 50, nine times at 60, and 11 times at age 65. So they are a little behind Fidelity. I, being sort of a play it safe type of guy, I'd probably lean towards Fidelity guidelines, Fidelity's guidelines, but the report is pretty interesting. Um, So definitely read it. They actually address a little bit uh, about how being married affects your magic number. Um, So worth considering. And maybe if you read the report, you might feel like, well, you know what? T-Row prices are more applicable to my situation. Now, how does your income factor into how much you need to save for retirement? Well, it primarily comes down to Social Security, which is designed to replace more pre-retirement income for lower income Americans. So here are some stats from a report from Franklin Templeton. Let's say over the course of your career, you averaged $50,000 a year. And that's adjusted for inflation. And when they calculate your Social Security benefit, they do adjust your um, income for inflation. But let's say you averaged $50,000 a year over your career. Social Security is going to replace 45% of that. What if you averaged $100,000 a year over your career? Social Security will replace 33%. 
$150,000 a year, Social Security replaces 27% and all the way down. Thus, the more you make, the less you'll get from Social Security as a percentage of your pre-retirement income, and the more you'll need to have saved up before you retire. And to demonstrate this, we turn to some guidelines from JP Morgan from its annual guide to retirement, which I highly recommend for all kinds of good stats and data related to retirement planning. Now, as of 2019, the median household income in the US was $70,000 a year. According to JP Morgan, if you want to retire at age 65 and that's your average income, you only need nine times your household income before you can retire. What if you make $100,000 a year? Well, you need 11 times your household income. $150,000 a year, you need almost 13 times. $200,000 income, you need 14 times and on the way up. So again, the more you make, the more you have to save because you're not going to get as much help from Social Security. So the bottom line is these guidelines are helpful, especially when discussing sort of retirement planning in general. But if you're going to use them, you need to dig into the variables of each study and to see what you need to tweak to make them more relevant to your situation. Uh, and now for something completely different, I just saw this on Twitter, that CNBC celebrated its 32nd birthday on April 17th. And I also learned that I was totally wrong about what CNBC stood for. So do either of you, Allison or Rick, know what CNBC stands for? Oh, man. I assumed the C stood for like corporate. I don't know. What did you... All right, Rick. Canadian National Broadcasting... <laughs> Right. system. Now you're just being silly. All right, bro. What is it? <laughs> well, so I always thought the NBC was because it's owned by NBC. It's a national broadcasting corporation. Yeah, and then yeah. I, don't know, I don't know what the C stood for. So but corporate no, NBC was what I was thinking. There you go. Totally wrong. Oh. It stands for Consumer News and Business Channel. I had no idea. Anyways, just a tidbit of trivia for you. And that, Allison, is what's up. Huh. What a long, strange journey it has been and continues to be in this country. As we're starting to hopefully see the light at the end of the tunnel for the COVID-19 pandemic, I thought this might be a good time to look around and see how changes in attitudes and habits have impacted the real estate market. And who better to help us make sense of the landscape than Matt Argersinger, Senior Advisor for Million Acres. Hey, Matt. Hey, Allison. Thanks for joining us. You bet. Always, always nice to have new voices and faces. Have you been on the show before? I forget. I think I was on the show with you guys, maybe definitely pre-pandemic, obviously. I think at least a couple of years ago. Now. Oh, so we have a lot to talk about. Lots to catch up on. Yeah. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of the different sectors of the real estate market, residential, retail, commercial, et cetera. Um, and we're going to... We're going to talk about it based on my super uneducated assumptions, and we'll see how right I am. Just from me absorbing headlines of articles and walking around my neighborhood, we'll see how, how good my spidey sense is. Um, and you'll tell me whether I'm right or wrong, and feel free to tell me I'm wrong. All right. I'm sure your guesses are going to be a lot more educated than you think. But Yeah, we'll see. All right. Let's start off by talking about residential real estate, because my assumption and this is based a lot about what's going on in my own neighborhood, is that residential real estate is booming and there's just not a lot of inventory, but a lot of demand. And that is driving up prices. Am I right? You're right. Uh, that is, it's, it's hard not to call the residential real estate, the home market right now in a boom. It's no matter what market, I mean, it's so widespread. You can go really to any major market in the country and you have the same situation. 
not a lot of inventory, like you said, prices at record highs, houses lasting, you know, barely lasting on the market. You've got, you know, bidding wars, people, uh, you know, submitting um, no contingency offers on, on, you know, and escalating escalation clauses to buy homes. It really is. I wouldn't call it a frenzy, but it definitely is a, a if you're especially if you're a seller, a great housing market right now. If you're a buyer though, man, it's tough, right? Because you've got there's a lot of demand out there. You're looking for homes and gosh, there's just not a lot out there. You, you know, and one of the things that's one of the things that's happening actually is that you have people holding on to their homes a lot longer than they ever have. And part of that is because uh, interest rates are so low uh, and a lot of people have second and third homes. And so you also have a situation where a lot of buyers, the carrying costs of holding on to their home uh, are not as high. And so if, if they were lucky enough to buy a home several years ago, it's easier just to hold on to. It's cheaper to hold on to a home right now than, than try to sell it. And so uh, there's just a lot of factors playing in, into the market right now, but uh, you can certainly call it a boom. Yeah. And there's also one of the big stories um, that I feel like is, again, my assumptions. So I hail from Boise, Idaho. Hey, Boise, Idaho. And the story in Boise, Idaho is that it is booming unlike it has ever boomed before, which is saying a lot because Boise has been in this massive boom for probably decades now. A people, And the story has been people in California selling their massive homes, massive expensive homes, or actually just very high-priced homes, retiring or just moving to Boise and buying a massive home with all of that money. And now, because so many more companies are working remotely, they are able to do that from Boise. Even though there aren't really that many big corporations to work from, you can still work from Silicon Valley, work for a Silicon Valley company, but then afford this massive home in Boise, Idaho. So when I go home, it's like it's like looking at a different, it's like looking at a different, visiting a different town. And it's not so bad. There's a lot better restaurants in Boise than there were when I grew up. So there's that. That's a bonus. Well, I, yeah, you. I think your your Boise example is a good one. There are essentially two trends happening. There's a long term trend, and this was happening even before COVID, which is you have a lot of this sort of natural migration pattern away from the northeast, away from the coasts, into the middle part of the country, the south part, southwest and southeast parts of the country, uh, and that that is what what's happened. So that that's that's been going on as people have sort of. People and businesses have sought out uh, cheaper places to locate and lower costs, lower taxes. Uh, so that's been a trend that's been intact. But what happened with COVID last year is that just got accelerated. And you mentioned the work from home trend, right? So wow, I, yeah, I might I might be a tech worker in San Francisco, uh, but you know what? If I can move to Boise, Idaho, and work remotely, and my cost of living's down, but I also live in a great place like Boise, that's that's pretty awesome. And so. Y- one of the things we look at in Million Acres is uh, it's kind of fascinating. You can look at um, uh, U-Haul statistics, so people renting U-Haul trucks and where do they go? And there's some interesting data you can see. You know, where does someone pick up the U-Haul? Where are they dropping it off? And it's amazing to see the trends, the the migratory patterns. You can see it right from the northeast, right from the coast, right into the middle of the country, right into the south uh, east and southwest. Um, the the lure of the Sun Belt. Uh, you know, great weather, of course, but also just uh, you know lower lower costs, lower taxes. It's just been such a magnet, uh, and that magnet has only gotten stronger. Uh, you know, last year. You know, you mentioned Boise, but gosh, you know, one of the strongest. This might seem this might seem surprising, but one of the strongest markets in the country is Indianapolis. Now, I don't know if Indianapolis shows up on anyone's sort of top ten list of places where people want to live, but it's been attracting. Um, huge populations because businesses are going there. It's 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 cheap and affordable and 
and people are living there. Um, so those examples like that are all over the middle of the country. And so, uh, and that's a trend that, you know, I don't see it, uh, depending on how this work from home trend plays out, we'll talk about that, I know, in a bit, but it could continue for quite a while. Yeah. I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal that said that, you know, residential home sales are at their highest peaks last seen since 2006. And so if I go in my way back machine of my brain, I remember that 2008, a couple years after 2006, was a real bummer. Yeah. And so can you talk a bit about how, like, are there, is this the same? Should I be worried? Is this the same? Is it different this time? How should I feel? Yeah. I've seen some of those headlines and um, certainly there's even some major market prognosticators calling this a bit of a bubble and that we might be heading to another you know, great financial crisis. I, I don't think so. Uh, I think the fundamentals of the market are a lot different this time around. I mean, for, first of all, interest rates are still near historical lows. The Fed has come out and already said that you know they're not going to be doing anything with rates probably until at least 2023. Uh, so, the, that, the credit markets are quote unquote a lot cheaper than they were back in the 2005 2006 area. But the big reason to me is that if you ask anyone who's tried to buy or refinance a home recently, uh you know, it's very difficult to do. I just refinanced a ho- um, home last fall and uh, it took us 3 months to refinance it. And I think I had to send maybe you know, um a thousand pages of documents my left arm and my son uh to get that refinancing done. Uh, it, it's just underwriters and banks and lenders are a lot stricter these days, and that's good. They're and they're in many cases are requiring higher down payments. You know, gone are the days of sort of the liar loans, the alt A mortgages, uh, subprime loans. I mean, those are still out there to a certain degree, but not not they're not near as prevalent as they were back in the the go go two thousand four, two thousand five, two thousand six times. So there's a lot more equity, so to speak, in homeowners. Um, you know. Homes and by the way, and home homeowner balance sheets are a lot higher as well. So there's a real big sort of buffer, I think, against anything like a, a housing crash or or a, you know a crisis of, that could lead to what we saw in 2008, which was a real bummer, by the way. It was. It was just a, a real oh gosh, oh gosh, golly. Um, yeah. One of the trends we've been talking about a lot this last year on the podcast is the idea of two Americas, where there is one group of people that is financially fantastic and undaunted by the pandemic and continues to thrive and do well. But then there's this other group of people who are financially less well off and the dis- the difference between the haves and the haves not seems to continue to grow in this in this nation and you also seem to see that in the real estate like the uh, i think the head of redfin said that housing has become a luxury good and it's like this idea that if you own a house you're excited about rising real estate prices but if you're not in the market yet that's got to be rough to get into it and buy that first home yeah it's it's it, there there are kind of two markets right now i think like as we talked about earlier, if you, if you own a house, obviously you're feeling great about your current situation, especially if you like your house and you want to live there. I mean, you're, you're, you're kind of all set, right? But you got to remember, there's so many people that are trying to buy homes. You've got a ton of pent-up demand, um, not just from the pandemic and the recession that kind of you know, got in the way of, of everyone trying to buy homes. But you know, we have um, this huge millennial cohort who are you know, predominantly in their 20s, 30s, but you know, they're, they're now earning good money and they have jobs and they'd like to buy a house uh, and so hopefully somewhere where they want to live. And the inventory, as we talked about, is so low uh, and getting in, try, so just getting into buying a house, um, you're competing with so many other buyers. It's tough. Um, and not and not to mention 
people who are lucky enough to have to have jobs and great situations and great financial situations, it's already hard for them. But it's it's even harder for people who are on the lower end of the sphere who might not have great credit, um, who are in and out of jobs, and and maybe who worked in the service industry last year when the pandemic hit and have really faced a lot more hardships. Um, that's that's unfortunately playing out in a lot of parts of the market, and I think uh, real estate is no exception. Well, what's your advice for people who uh, for home buyers generally? Well, you know, first my 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 big advice always is don't don't look at your home as an investment. Uh, you know, we tend to look at our. I mean, it is one of the biggest purchases we'll ever make. Probably for most people, the biggest purchase they're ever going to make. Uh, but your home should be your home. It shouldn't be something as viewed as like uh, you know, hey, I'm this is you know con- part of my investment portfolio. This is the real estate portion of my portfolio. Uh, I would never look at it like that, just because we tend to treat our homes differently than we would an investment. We 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 invest in our homes differently. We you know we take care of our homes differently. It's don't look at it as an investment. And then, but second to that, I would always, if you're looking to buy a house, always it's it's a little bit cliche, but look, location is really key. So you want to focus on where you want to live, um, not so much the house itself. I I can't believe I talked to so many people who they go see a house and it's in a place, it's in a great neighborhood, it's where they want to live, and they'll walk into the kitchen and they'll see like the a back a backsplash they don't like, and they're like, I, I can never buy this house, not with that kitchen backsplash right there. And I'm like, you can change that, you can change the kitchen, you can change the bathroom, you can. You can modify the house. I mean, you can make the house what you want. What you're really buying is where the house is. You know, is it close to things you love? Is it close to a great school for your kids? Is it it a short commute to work? Is it have a great park system nearby? All those other things that should be the reason you buy a house, not necessarily because you know you don't like the tile in the bathroom. I mean, so um, that's that's my big general advice. And then here's one small tip um, I would say: if you're looking to buy a house. Be a little patient and maybe focus your viewing efforts in the fall and winter timeline. Specifically, I'd go November to February. And the reason is, you know, A, you're outside of sort of the prime spring and, and fall home buying seasons. But homes that are listed or still available during, say, November and February, you're probably dealing with less competition. You're probably dealing with houses that have been on the market for a while. There's going to be fewer buyers uh, bidding. Um, and you might be able to negotiate with a the seller. Um, there's usually reasons. I mean, think about it. If someone lists their house, say, a week before Thanksgiving, uh, they're either desperate to sell or they've got a situation in their life where they need to move and do somewhere else. So uh, that's just one little tip. If you're looking to buy, maybe be a little patient, wait for those sort of down winter months before uh, looking to buy a house. So you said don't um, think of your house, your home as an investment. But what about those who do want to invest in real estate, such as becoming like having a rental properties? Yeah, well then there you go. I mean, I think then you come in with this, uh, you know, a certain different vantage point, right, about how you're approaching things. So uh, I'll just give an example. My wife uh, and me, when we bought our first place, it was um, it was a two unit place in Washington D.C. So it wasn't quite a duplex, but it had a um, it was a row house. It had a top main house, main unit where we lived, and it had a, a rental basement that was very easy to rent out while we were living there. And so it wasn't quite. I wouldn't quite pure real estate investing, but it was a way for us to offset the cost of our mortgage. We also learned kind of how to be a landlord, and it was a good learning experience. So I would say, if you're getting into the real estate business and you're looking to own a rental property, do something simple, do something turnkey, do a duplex, maybe where you live on one side and rent out the other, or you know, in rent a, invest in a condo that you rent out because condos have a lot less maintenance. Um, there's nothing worse than, and I've dealt with this, is you know, buying a, a rental property that's um, Part of a hundred-year-old house, 
and figuring out all the problems and all the costs uh, that you can imagine go into something like that. So keep it simple, keep it turnkey, um, at least for your first one or two deals. And then as you get you know more experience as a landlord and you want to expand your real estate portfolio, you can go for bigger things, bigger pro- bigger rental properties, or you can get into the commercial real estate. But um, just keep your life simple at first as you're starting into it. Go slowly. All right, let's move on and talk about the state of commercial real estate. And as you taught me before the show, uh, commercial real estate falls into a few different categories. So uh, retail, office space, hospitality, industrial. So let's let's start off by looking at retail real estate. So my assumption Oh, this is this is my very uneducated assumption is that it's maybe a mixed bag. I mean, I feel like the 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 big headline that long long story has always been the decline of the big box store and I think that's probably marching along. But I feel like consumers are still consuming and people are spending their stimulus checks and still shopping. So, I don't know. I'm going to guess mixed bag. I think mixed bag is right. I mean, look, if you look at the retail sales that just came out recently, they were huge. I mean, historical growth in retail sales and Obviously, that's a re- what you said. People have stimulus money. They they've been waiting to go out. You, have, you know, people are getting vaccinated, so they're feeling more comfortable going out and shopping. So clearly, we saw a big jump in in retail sales recently. But you're right. It's it's kind of where's that where's that going? Where's that happening? And big box stores, malls, department stores. Oof, I mean, it was already bad coming into COVID, and those places just obviously experienced even more dire uh, dire scenario once the pandemic hit last year. And so those are going to continue to suffer. I just think already, if you looked at how consumers were shopping, they were already moving away from places like that. The idea of you know driving and going to a place specifically to go shopping um, is, is becoming a little bit thing of a past. I think when I look at retail and you look at what's working in retail, you have situations where there's a reason I'm going to this location beyond just to go shopping. Maybe it's because um, there's a there's a pharmacy there, or there's my favorite salon, or there's a movie theater I like to go to, or a, a great restaurant, or a bowling alley. Uh, you know, all these things, reasons why people, why families get out of the house. Um, they're going to go to places like that. And then there's if there's sort of adjacent retail to that, great. Um, one of the other big trends you're seeing is a lot of retail is being transformed into other uses. So Simon Property. Group, which is the biggest mall owner in the country, they've they've made a, a habit recently of turning, uh, you know, their retail footprints into data centers um, or warehouses. Uh, Amazon's been buying up a lot of those, and or they're taking some of their bigger mall footprints and actually redeveloping redeveloping them entirely into you know quote mixed use properties where you might have some retail, but there's also maybe multifamily apartments or uh, condos or you know medical offices, senior housing, um, entertainment venues, things like that. So it's just retail is going to be repurposed into places where people want to go to have experiences or because they have sort of a a need uh, or or want to go there. Um, The shopping side of it, I think, is becoming almost ancillary, actually, to that because we know what what are people doing? They're, They're shopping online more than ever before. The, uh, in fact, if you look at e-commerce sales last year, 2020, um, they pulled forward about five years worth of e-commerce growth into one year. So we, we know that's the trend when it comes to retail. People are shopping more online. They're buying more fresh produce and restaurants, food online. And that's, those trends aren't, certainly aren't going away. All right, let's move on and talk about office space. Because my assumption is that people who manage own office space are running around with their heads on fire amidst all the stories basically about how people with office jobs want to keep working from home. 
And so I'm, I'm a, if I were working in an office space, I would probably be a little worried. Well, yeah, if you're if you're a big office landlord, it's it's been it, it was tough, and you, and there's so much uncertainty out there. If you look, for example, at Empire State Realty Trust, which is the uh, real estate investment trust that owns the Empire State Building, well, they own the Empire State Building, but they also own um, a lot of uh, you know square footage office space, square footage in Manhattan. Um, man, they've had a tough time. You know, they've seen their occupancy plunge, they've seen their rental collections drop. You know, down to sixty percent. I mean, that's that's been tough. So the traditional office landlord in the big city um, has faced a lot of pressure, um, and there's just big uncertainty about where what's going to happen. I think we even see a little bit of that uncertainty with us here at the Motley Fool, right? Where we don't know what our working situation is going to be. You know, in a few months, are we going to be coming into the office uh, regularly like we were before, or is it more of a one to two days per week, you know, hybrid situation, or are a lot of us just working from home most of the time? And I think that's the question a lot of uh, offices and businesses face. Now, there have been some big headlines where companies like Google, um, Goldman Sachs comes to mind, where they've said, you know, we prefer people in the office. We think there's collaboration and culture building that happens at the office that just doesn't happen um, from when, if, if everyone's working sort of in their solitary office at home. And I, I, I think there's something to that as well. So I think most offices are going to move to more of a hybrid. Employees are definitely going to have more flexibility, and um, you know, office managers are going to be okay with workers maybe coming in one or two days a week. But that also means offices are going to have to be redesigned. Are they going to become sort of the co-sharing places that WeWork was trying to establish before they imploded? And maybe they're still trying to establish. But um, with the idea where workers come to the office for one or two days a week to collaborate. And it's not like these, you know, individual offices are, uh, you know. So it's so many questions. So and and it's just a really tough place, I think, to invest or be confident in, uh, given where the trends are. All right, let's move on and talk about industrial. So my assumption is I have no idea how industrial is doing. <laughs> the word just conjures up smokestacks and factories, and I'm just like, I have no clue, no clue how industrial is doing. <laughs> well, it's industrial has undoubtedly been the big winner. Um, if you can call it, if you can say any any part of the industry has been a winner uh, from pandemic. Um, but industrial, when you when we say industrial real estate, it's actually most mostly these days made up of warehouses, uh, logistics centers, flex office spaces, uh, man, like light manufacturing, especially in the United States, and that has absolutely boomed. Um, it was booming even before COVID. It's it's booming even more now. A lot of the reasons we talked about. E-commerce, people buying things online. Well, we just don't have enough warehouse space um, and logistic fulfillment space in this country. Um, I saw a report by CBRE, which is the big uh, commercial real estate and analytics firm, uh, a little while ago. I think the end of uh, end of last year, where they talked about the need for 400 million square feet. We need 400 million square feet of more warehouse space just to handle returns that we don't currently have right now. And so we need hundreds of millions, if not billions, of more square feet. Of warehouse space, people are buying more things online. We need the transportation and, and warehousing infrastructure to to handle it, especially in sort of those last mile places, you know, near cities. If, if I'm living in Boston or Chicago or Washington D.C., you know, and I order something online, I kind of want that in a day or two. I'm used to that, right? Well, that that's an incredible feat, right? That requires there to be some kind of warehouse and fulfillment center, you know, within a reasonable distance from where I live. And there's just not a lot of those right now. So that there's a huge demand for that space. And it's not just traditional warehouse and fulfillment. You've got cold storage is another one. Uh, 
people are ordering fresh food and groceries and restaurant food online now. And so there's not a lot of space, uh, warehouse space that handles specifically cold storage. Um, the other big trend that's helping industrial is um, another uh, kind of a product of the pandemic is the the trend towards nearshoring or insourcing. Um, if you think about manufacturing, um, the United States and most modern economies have prided themselves over the last several decades on just-in-time manufacturing. Well, the uh, Urban Land Institute came out with a recent uh, article that I thought was really interesting, and they talked about just-in-case manufacturing. So, when you think about medical supplies or vaccines, um, geez, face masks, right? We had such shortages of those things early on in the pandemic. And the reason is because we outsourced a lot of those uh, manufacturing to other countries. And uh, so there is a, now a trend towards bringing a lot of that home, at least a percentage of it, back to the shores, either so we can produce it here. Um, and we, of course, just don't have the manufacturing space we used to in the country. So that is another trend where we need more industrial space. So that side of the market, uh, of the real estate market, has absolutely boomed. And it's probably going to boom for several more years. Yeah, and it's interesting how you need industrial space everywhere. Like your point, it's that last mile shipping, that last mile warehouse. We, you can't just go buy Wyoming and turn Wyoming into one <laughs> massive warehouse, even though you've got land there. Right. It's, and and you need think about it how... just a little bit outside Baltimore, which is like, well, okay, now we don't have so much space. Exactly. You don't have space. And think about how expensive that is. It's you And, and warehouses are huge. I mean, the, the average Amazon fulfillment center, I, I believe, is like a 500,000 square feet <laughs> facility. I mean, it covers uh, football fields, right? And how do you find that land or space out, outside or near major metropolitan centers? It's very tight uh, and very expensive. Yeah. All right. Last one is hospitality. And my assumption is that, oh, wow, they took this one just square on the chin as a result of the pandemic. Yeah. Along with retail, just really one of the parts of the real estate market that suffered and probably suffered the most. Uh, you know, it was the, the one thing about hospitality. Um, you know, if you're looking at it from a real estate lens, is your tenants are on one-day leases, right? Um, it's not where I'm, I'm an office where maybe I have a tenant who's on a multi-year lease, or even an apartment building where I have tenants that are six-month lease or one-year lease. So, you know, it's not like they can walk out the door and just stop paying rent. There's, you know, there's things that we can, that can be done. That's not the case for the hotel space, right? As soon as COVID hit, and you had closures come in, and states implement restrictions, uh, people flew home and. And man, they just didn't travel. They didn't stay at hotels. And so occupancy across the whole market just plunged. Um, really dire situation. Now, I expect, and so hardest hit for sure, but I also think it's one part of the real estate market that is going to probably bounce back the, the fastest and the hardest. Because as things sort of open up, and hopefully by, say, the second half of this year, and certainly into 2022, as people get comfortable traveling again, uh, either for work or pleasure or... Um, Vegas, Las Vegas starts, you know, <clears throat> hosting conferences again, and people are traveling to that. So that I believe there's so much pent up demand for people to travel, uh, especially to places like you know to resorts or destination cities, um, and that. I, so that I expect is really going to help the hospitality market, uh, hotels. What I'm a little concerned about is is the business travel side of that. Um, it's easy to see people traveling for pleasure and that kind of coming back. What I want to know is. Given how you know successful Zoom has been as a as in the work from home trend, do people feel the need to jump on a plane uh, to go to Boise, Idaho, or or Los Angeles for a few days to meet a client or you know to do business? It, that's a big outstanding question for me. Um, but certainly, it's one of those parts where I think there's a lot of value in hospitality if you kind of pick the, pick your right spots. 
All right, Matt, let's have you just wrap this up with a bow here. What's your overall take on real estate um, right now? Real estate investing, go. <laughs> uh, well, I, 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 I'm really biased here, Allison and Bro, but uh, you know, I um, work for our Million Acres, which is the real estate side of the Motley Fool, and and. I've studied real estate. I've been a real estate investor for many years. I've studied the real estate markets, and I think it's a wonderful asset class to invest in. I think every investor should have a percentage of their uh, portfolio in real estate. Um, and there's, if you ever, if you want, go to millionacres.com. There's tons of free resources there. Um, so there's my there's my pitch to go there. But uh, re- you know, real estate. If you know, had a tough year in 2020, uh, but interesting. Looking at 2021, uh, real estate's one of the best performing sectors. Of the stock market, and I bring that up because one of the easiest ways to invest in real estate is to look to invest in real estate investment trusts. They uh, REITs, as they're commonly called, they've been around since the 1960s. You can kind of think of them as uh, mutual funds of real estate. Um, but the beautiful thing is, there's hundreds of REITs to choose from. Um, they're, they pay usually often pay nice dividends because they they have to pay a high percentage of their pre-tax profits to back to investors as dividends, so they don't pay taxes at the federal level. Uh, and real estate investment trusts have an excellent track record. If you go back um, really decades, and the National Association of REITs has actually tracked it, um, the average REIT has actually outperformed the stock market over time, and with much less volatility. So it's a great way to uh, invest in, in real estate that way, and. Uh, I think that's one way to get exposure uh, to the market. Uh, one, of the, one another way that we talked about earlier, Allison, is just uh, buying an investment property. Now that comes with a lot of additional headaches. Um, buying REITs with your brokerage accounts a lot easier and cheaper. Um, but that is a way if you really want to sort of leverage yourself to real estate, you can start with uh, doing buying a real property. Uh, one other way that's come about more recently. Um, and really, just in the last say decade, is the is the idea of crowdfunding, uh, and so nowadays it's it's possible for individual investors to uh, invest in syndicated deals or deals that are crowdfunded. So in the past, you know, it was impossible for you to invest in say an office building in Chicago or a uh, a self storage facility in Denver, Colorado, if you didn't live there or and you didn't have connections and. Didn't have a lot of money, but now you can. You can actually buy equity in those kinds of situations. Uh, usually, you have to be an accredited investor to do that. But those those regulations are changing all the time, and and, and the securities are getting a lot more accessible, uh, really by the day. So, um, really, three ways I, I think to get started in the real estate market: either with real estate investment trusts, buying your own property, and we could spend hours talking about the the challenges of that, uh, or by looking at crowdfunding uh, as a way to do it. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us and explaining the real estate market to it. Uh, this has been really fascinating, and I was also uh, very excited to learn that most of my assumptions were were maybe pretty close to being right. So, yay me! I'd say you were pretty spot on, Allison. Actually. Yay! <laughs> my gut always has a good sense of what's going on. All right, Matt. Well, we'd love to have you back on in the future. Uh, but thanks again. This has been great. Thank you. Well, that's the show. It's edited corporately by rick angdahl our email is answers at fool.com for robert brokamp i'm allison southwick stay foolish everybody Bye.